0: Welcome to the Learner Centered Spaces podcast, where we empower and inspire ownership of learning. Sponsored by Mastery Portfolio, hosted by Star Saxstein And Crystal Frommer. In each episode, we will bring you engaging conversations with a wide variety of educators, both
1: in and out of the classroom. This podcast is created for educators who want to learn more about how to make the shift toward learner-centered spaces for their students, schools, and districts, or education at large.
0: The learner-centered spaces podcast is now a member of the Teach Better Podcast Network.
1: Caitlin Krause is an educator, extended reality experience designer, author, and keynote speaker. As founder of the XR Consultancy, Mind wise, her thought leadership thrives at the intersection of technology, innovation, and well being. She teaches about digital wellness at Stanford University. Her most recent teaching has been part of the Stanford Living Education associated with wellness. She teaches the course Digital Well Being Designing Healthy Relationships with Technology. Caitlin has authored the books Digital Satori in 2023. Designing Wonder, Leading Transformative Experiences in XR in 2021, and Mindful by Design in 2019. She has advised organizations including Google, Meta, Oracle, TED, Evernote, University of San Francisco, ETH Zurich, and the US State Department. Recently, she has been leading workshops for the Air Force, teaching about resilience, leadership, mindfulness, and creativity. She has created and run numerous collaborative experiences in social XR, fusing presence, storytelling, meditation, and emotional intelligence. She is also a scriptwriter and designer for digital therapeutic applications that incorporate haptics and biofeedback. She serves on the Board of Advisors at TRIP and as a Senior Strategist for the Virtual World Society. She holds an MFA from Lesley University and a BA from Duke University. With over two decades of experience, she helps individuals and teams navigate complexity and change the future of work, prioritizing empathy, design, and imagination. Please welcome Caitlin to our show today. I am so excited that Caitlin's here with us today. So
0: Caitlin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your role, your location, your
2: journey, and maybe an interesting fact about yourself? Sure. And I'm equally happy. I've been thrilled about this conversation. Thanks, Star, for having me on. So uh, I'm Caitlin Krause. I currently live outside of San Francisco, although Boston is my hometown. Um, and I have my own company, MindWise. We're going to talk about that. I teach at Stanford a course called Digital Wellbeing by Design. Um, and that that kind of leads to my interesting fact, I think, is that I consider my homes many different places. Um, I grew up, my parents were in the Foreign Service. So we were constantly moving around, adapting. And I've realized lately that that, that situation for me, having lived full-time overseas, um, in three different continents as I was growing up, I was always having to um, really lean into my own curiosity. Otherwise, I would be scared. So I kind of discovered in an early age, a lot of my learning experience happened from being curious and uh, asking questions and also just dreaming up my own stories and connections as we were moving around a lot. Can I ask you a question about what your class is? Do you
1: you teach um, Stanford students who are preparing to be teachers or are they in any kind of field, any industry?
2: So uh, that's a great question, Crystal. Uh, Right now, as I'm teaching, I'm in the wellness department. The course I teach, uh, the longer title is Digital Wellbeing by Design, Developing Healthy Relationships with Technology. So it's really the human human relationship mediated by tech, and I teach students of all ages. People can come to my course who are undergrads, some people are med students, some people are in a CS course and they're designing the computer science code underneath tech. Uh, some people come to the class and they tell me, "I want to design a digital therapeutics app you know and and we talk more about the framework of why and the intention underneath the design. Um, It's a project based course. I've done work in virtual reality design and I was a programmer out of college before moving into education. Um, So yeah, so the course draws people from all different disciplines. And my background is really interdisciplinary. So I encourage people, um, first off in this class, because it's at Stanford, some people come in and they're, they're just so academic, and it's wonderful, but they're, they're more focused on the output. And I say, well, You know, let's frame this by using our physical bodies as the testing ground. I'll introduce them to different topics. So we go week by week and it's like um, gemstones on a necklace where I tell them each of these is linked um, and you're going to use yourself as really the experiment to see how this feels in your body like if we're talking about social media and you know it's not so much let's control our consumption and be very prescriptive about the way that we develop habits but more intentional like okay you know why do we want to use social media in the first place and you know how does it make us feel energy wise and what time of day you know just being observational about ourselves. Um so I could go on and on, but we talk about habit building and healthy thriving and you know what it means to um the the side note is I I also research wonder and awe and I get into states of wonder and creative expression. So we talk a lot about flow states and how people um have a challenge skills balance with how they get into a creative state of flow. So that's part of the course I teach I have a background teaching middle school and high school, which we can also talk about. But right now at the university level, it's also all ages. And I think sometimes we're all kids in bigger bodies. So, you know, it's like we we become like lifelong kindergarten there. I would love to take
1: that class. That sounds so interesting. Do you want to touch a little bit into how you had a learner-centered space in your middle and high school classes
2: when you taught there? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think I could also sort of backwards way into that because I was just thinking about this. Um, I taught a workshop or led a workshop called a discovery session, and it was at TED, um, the the main TED program in Vancouver, like main stage TED. They asked me to come lead a session this year. And I really started like every experience saying, well, how does our physical setup encourage a learner-centered experience. And so, you know, I had everybody in the room really focus on, um, we had writing, you know, different paper and imagine all the colorful pens that were in the room and people walk in and they're there there to really learn um, and be there at TED sharing together these great ideas. You know, TED's like ideas worth spreading. And I thought, well, how can people come into the room And be in a shape. And I often joke around and I say, well, if we're sharing in community, you don't just say, oh, circle up. I say to people, how do you frame your body if you're about to share so that your back isn't to anyone else? And if you say to someone, let's put ourselves in a group uh, space where our back isn't to anyone else, then people end up in a circle. So it's kind of interesting uh, for me being learner-centered is often realizing um From a biology perspective, that we have uh, most of us a uh, stereoscopic eye vision we can't see behind us, but often our empathy provides input about what we're blocking for others, and this can kind of be a metaphor. I want my learner centered spaces to be inviting, to be colorful, and if there's a a process that involves both External sharing and internal reflection. I want to give enough space also for people to have that that solitude because I think we focus so much a lot on collaboration and on um, the loudness. And I also think um, for myself as an ambivert, it's really important to have the quiet and have the reflection. Um, so when I when I started teaching. I was teaching uh, in a high school and I'd been doing programming, like I mentioned, and I came in, you know, as a new teacher. And uh, I I remember, you know, some of the basic premises of, you know, inviting students and having reflection exercises and having um, a board on the side that was just the graffiti board for when people came in early and they wanted to draw, um, get playful. I had um, invitational prompts that would welcome people into a space and then we'd start um, storytelling. So those were those were some of my anchors that just have lasted form fits function. Whenever I'm in a different environment or teaching to a different group, it really is about uh, greeting them, not as empty vessels, but as people coming in with a whole backstory um, and a whole formative journey that I can play a part in supporting.
0: Something I really appreciate about you, Caitlin, in all the time that I've known you, there's this authentic like everything about you is intentional and authentic and the mindfulness work for some reason when when you talk about the mindfulness work it's not always as off put it's never off putting from you as it is by um, my parents um, because you know that my I I have family backgrounds in all of this too and my husband works in uh, mindfulness as well but when I hear you talking
2: about it somehow I could listen to it more. (laughs) Yeah. Um <laughs> thank you. Let me just say thanks for that. I appreciate that. <laughs> um um yeah.
0: But what I'm what I'm super curious about is you have this wonderful idea about what classroom spaces are like and how we bring ourselves in. And you you mentioned, you know, the formative work that you're helping kids or learners in general, regardless of their age, come to. What does assessment look like in that space?
2: How do you know that kids or adult learners get it. Love that. Um, gosh, and we could go so many directions. I just want to back up and say mindfulness. When I started mindwise, I'd been teaching and I have a company that that fuses mindfulness design and storytelling as Star knows. Um and I was lofting it and launching it in Switzerland after teaching at the international school there. So I think part of why I am very playful and porous about the approach and um is because in, in German, there was no word for that. So in Zurich, when people would say, you know, what is mindfulness? I'd, I'd explain it and often explain it in different terms or give people inroads that had a context. So I started, um, I wrote a book called Mindful by Design, where I was deconstructing mindfulness, not prescriptively, but saying there's awareness um, of both your internal, external surroundings. There's advancement. Which is like growth mindset, you know, questioning, and um, really kind of taking out the the judgment on limiting beliefs. And then the third A that I was uh, attaching to mindfulness is authenticity. When you discover that you can you can reveal yourself, you can be seen. You know, as Parker Palmer says, we're kind of these Mobius strips where maybe. In education, some people used to feel like they needed to put on armor or go into a classroom and, you know, be be perfect or be the authority. And and with mindfulness, it gave me um, more permission to just play and be seen, and also use my students as co teachers and mentors, and um, and really really show up in my my kindness. You know, as I think I, I quote a lot of people, but Brene Brown, you know, what does it mean to be messy, brave, and kind? Um, so thank you, at least for for just naming that. And also, I've always felt very seen um, by you as I do what I do as a teacher and a guide and a curious learner. So in assessment, I think it's it's pretty much a similar vein where um, my goal is that is to to really show a student. The bigger picture, like all of all of my favorite stories, have maps at the beginning. Uh, You know, so I like to say, you know, adventures, or maybe it's what drew me to virtual reality, like a way to map and frame a territory. And for me, assessment is not pinning someone down on a board or giving them a label of a number or a grade, but saying, hey, you know, what's the map? And if we're if we're adopting a compass over map strategy, you know, where do you want to grow? How can how can we actually understand where we are on the map? And and so a lot of what I'm doing is co co mapping and and translanguaging. Saying along the way, you know where where are you curious about? How can you have uh, like I'll say to people individually, let's get together one on one. Each of my courses, I always have a one on one meeting with a student intentionally along the way. So I mentioned that my course is portfolio based. Um, for example, the digital wellness course, students, um, they have exposure to a variety of topics. Then they pick one that they want to develop into more of a bigger project toward the end. But in the middle of the course, before they're sharing about this project, we're meeting, you know, I'm giving them a lot of formative assessment and feedback. Um, and, And a lot of my assessment has to do with their reflection practices. And so it's not really you know, how well did you score on this? But it's, you know, how deeply are you thinking about this? Uh, what do you want to produce? Who's it intended for? Um, yeah. So, so I think assessment is really interesting because ideally I, I want a course that has some rigor and I feel like some rigor involves growth and growth involves discomfort. So a lot of times I'm comfort crushing, with students telling them, you're totally safe here. you should be pushing the boundaries. Like if something doesn't seem a little bit scary, maybe you're not leaning into it with some kind of investment. Um, so I think um, that that is interesting to me because I recently read this book by Anna Lemke called Dopamine Nation, and she was saying, yeah, you know, I think the subtitle has something to do with being comfortable or, you know, we I've been questioning the word happiness. Uh, I think, I think there's a lot of deep joy in life. And obviously I love wonder and awe. I don't think that means that things always have to be uh, comfortable. And um, so, so I love creating a safe space for that type of assessment journey.
0: And what I appreciate so much about what you just said, Caitlin is like how everything you just described is essentially what I try to help K-12 teachers do. Mm. And it's, part of the biggest pushback I get from high school teachers in particular is, you know, that kids need the numbers and scores and how do you do this And higher ed isn't really um, open to what you just described. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, and we've had quite a few higher ed folks on our podcast who have also said, you know, very very well, that they're able to do this kind of work and this kind of work is what makes their college classrooms thrive as well. And it's it, it makes my heart so happy to know that there are practitioners at every level who embrace portfolio work and reflection. And that idea of discomfort for growth is just huge. So
2: thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And I, I think I'm a hopeful. <laughs> I have optimism, Star, that, that the systems will change, but we have to kind of demand it, like maybe in some cases do it anyway and keep collecting the data. So I've been meeting um, about qualitative and quantitative data, even data that shows why environments that have wonder-rich landscapes produce more brain states that are open and curious and then lead us into... More invention, because a lot of people might think, "Oh, the the word wonder it means rainbows and butterflies," but it actually means a liminal state where we're. It, it can mean that, and yes, and it can mean that we're um, less attached to one way of thinking or less attached to a fixed identity and more open to empathy. So along the way, I'm really encouraged by the fact that I can collect these data points, and then for people who need to be um, encouraged and convinced by the data, they'll see down the line. So when we talk about everything from assessment to design strategies for learning environments, you know, having the data to back us up, then, you know, more people who are on the fence will start to design differently. I, I love that, all of that, and again, I wish I was taking your class because I
1: have so much to learn in this area. Yeah. Um, because I'm a math teacher, and mm-hmm. um, in, in my career has been very much points, marks, percentages, grades—you know, the very traditional route of of assessment. Um, and I'm I'm growing and learning as a professional to evolve. From that, so I'm I'm curious. Um, I'm on I'm on my part of my journey, and there are educators on their part of their journey. So, what advice would you have for someone who's on that journey to to get away from the traditional points and marks and the the paper tests and all of the things that were so traditional in education um, to more to a project based learner centered type of environment? What advice would you have for them? Uh,
2: I think first off. One of the pieces of advice is that um, I think that there's a through line. There are a lot of connections between different disciplines. So, uh, for example, I really love math. I'm very into math. Um, Yeah, I have a friend who's a mathematician and uh, says that creativity is imagining a world that possibly doesn't exist. You know, it's not, it's not this physical world, but you you imagine a world and then the conditions of that world are essentially what math is. You're dreaming up something and then making principles that have to be true based on that dream. And that type of metaphor just speaks to me. I think part of why I love poetry is that poetry is basically math encoding into language. And there's a form to it underneath. And when you discover that and you show students the form underneath a poem, then you're teaching them also how to break it. And then once they break those rules, they're like, oh my gosh, free verse, you know, going against. Um, and then that that form of the, the math and the heartbeat is also the iambic pentameter. And then you introduce that that's in our physical bodies, you know, and I used to say, um... Part of the reason Shakespeare wrote niambic pentameter is he was saying that the actors on the stage could only say that in one spoken breath. So the breath out needed to break the line then to inhale again and then breathe out with those lines of poetry. So I I think without imposing it, I don't want to force any connection onto somebody. But I would say, you know, what what makes you come alive? You know, what what are you curious about? And uh, I think there's a reason that people were drawn to education in the first place, whether it's their passion for a subject or their real joy that they feel when they help somebody else and they see a student flourishing. So the more that people are encouraged to go into those spaces, which are, you know, hard right now. I think I think we've all been through something in the past few years. So people people need time, and and educators need to be supported in that. That real um, gravity and soulfulness of having that support, and then and then seeing the connections, because learners also thrive with those connections. Um, so again, I I find myself I get to be the conduit. Sometimes I go into other spaces, I consult, and I go into other um, groups of teachers, and it's it's kind of also a safe space because I'm coming in from the outside without any of that context. And saying, "Here's some ideas. Here's some ways ways to invigorate," um, and and I, I really I get joy from that from seeing somebody else say, "Oh yeah, I've I've been kind of repressing that part of me that is part of why I'm a teacher in the first place." Um, so that's my short answer, Crystal. But <laughs> and again, I'll reiterate: everybody's welcome if you want to come by Stanford and you know come by the class. I. I find for me, I'm I'm always learning, and so uh, finding new ways. Um, and what what came up to to me as well as I was talking about the breath, is that there are more more needs to encourage embodiment, which is you know that I think w- we've gotten used to a lot to to digital technology and the ways that we communicate. Um, but it's kind of this point with AI where it's back to the human. We can use AI for a lot of automation and a lot of maybe getting some ideas rolling, but it's still that human-human connection where my, my neurons are going to fire in a mirrored way when I'm face-to-face with you having a social-emotional connection. So I think that embodiment and that the movement practices that we need, um, this is all baked in right now to the real opportunity we have as humans to, to shape our future right now.
1: What you're saying reminds me so much of a a class that's offered at my school. We're an IB diploma school. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure if they're familiar with the International Baccalaureate, but there's a class called Theory of Knowledge, um, TOK for short. And um, the TOK teacher talks very much like you talk, like very much the same kind of vein of information and the connection. Um, And I share a classroom with the TOK teacher this year, and I teach... Wild seventh graders algebra, and he teaches the, the more chill seniors TOK. And mm-hmm. I see on the board, you know, what he's writing about mathematicians and the history of math, and and what you say about wonder and awe. I mean, I I'm, maybe I'm biased, but I can't think of another subject that's more based on wonder and awe than math. But maybe yeah. science is a close second. But math is up there. So, <laughs> um, so thank you for that. I, mean, I am biased about math. That's for sure.
2: Oh yeah. And that's, that's amazing. I am familiar with the IB program from teaching overseas. Um, a lot of the international schools also use that. And I think I think it's everywhere. I feel like theory of knowledge kind of un- uncovers the layers. And I couldn't agree with you more about math. There's there's so much magic there. Uh, yeah. yeah. I'm
0: laughing in the background as the humanities person on the... <laughs> Like, mm-hmm. math for me does not have quite as much wonder and awe as <laughs> I, I wish it would. I mean, I think oh. theoretical math on some level is interesting. Like, I'm one of those weird anomalies that really appreciated algebra and, like, the, the theoretical stuff more than stuff that's more concrete, like geometry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, But, you know, I, I, I love Crystal's passion for math. Um, I'm surrounded by math people now. So I I am beginning to have a totally new appreciation for it, given. Yeah, we're all learning. We're all evolving. Yeah, that is so true.
2: And, you know, when I was living in Zurich, I'll just share. I had a colleague who taught history and he used to do walking tours. And I loved it because he'd say, let's meet up on a weekend and let's walk around the city and just discover. And he was a member of a club where he could get a key and go down into um, these kind of tunnels that were below the city. So you could pop down in Zurich on one end, and then you go through the tunnel, which is medieval times and pop up the other end. Um, but in the train station, he pointed up and anyone who travels by train, you know, sometimes there are these hidden things and there was the Fibonacci sequence that was on the ceiling of the Zurich train station. It's still there. Um, there's, it's kind of spiraling out with the numbers, uh, represented by birds And we had to look really closely to see it. And sometimes I remind myself too, you know, as I'm going about my day, like just look up, there won't always be a sequence up there to figure out, but sometimes it's just looking up at leaves or looking up at patterns and realizing there is some kind of hidden code underneath. Um, And part of it just, just increases my ability to take these micro moments of reverie, which you know, again, it kind of calls me both back to myself and also lets me detach a little bit um, in these moments. You know, it gives me more perspective to come back to whatever is a task that I'm doing.
0: Uh, that's, that's awesome. I love the idea of looking up. I find that, especially in nature, um, for me, and maybe this is where math ties in, is like, I could see patterns in nature mm-hmm. and trends and When I'm out walking in a forest and there's sunlight that comes through a lot of trees in a particular way and the way that it reflects light um, on the ground through that space is kind of like that idea of being able to see and wonder in the world around
2: us. Yeah. And biomimicry. There's a whole chapter. So when I wrote Mindful by Design, I had exercises for teachers and then that turned into exercises for everybody that needs to support others. And then the second half are um, cross-disciplinary ways to infuse mindfulness. So there's a whole chapter on biomimicry and science because teachers were telling me, I don't have time for this mindfulness. I don't have time to to work that into my program. So this book is backwards driven where I said, you know, you don't have time not to use mindfulness and social emotional connection, but there are different ways to uh, cross list it with courses and with content. So I think the biomimicry is one great example um, of ways we can be intentional and have mindfulness as a value and exercises that encourage that type of connection. Awesome!
0: I appreciate that so much. As we're getting ready to wrap up, Caitlin, are there folks you want to shout out about? You know, people who have influenced you, or other other folks we should have on our radars if we don't have them already to help with these learner centered practices.
2: Yes. <laughs> In short, yes. Uh, there are so many people that I am grateful for, and also that I hearken back to, and I think. What's interesting, too, is that I'm I'm a poet, I'm a writer, uh, I write books of poetry, I went back for a master's of fine arts and focused on poetry, so some of the people that were my favorite teachers were people that uncovered that code for me. So, you know, I just want to mention some of them were Raphael Campo and Teresa Cater. Uh, Wayne Brown was a poet. He's passed away, but he was from Jamaica and he had this amazing accent. And he was, he was always reading poetry and telling me it's meant to be out loud, Caitlin. And even one time he challenged me, he said, memorize this poem and come back to me, you know, when you've, when you've memorized it. And it was just, it was a nice challenge to me to, to bring out the light within and between poetry. So, Um, Other teachers and colleagues and people that I love include the entire wellness department at Stanford, um, Sarah Meyer-Tapia, the department chair, who's recently been um, co-teaching with me and also involving more of an evaluation of um, wearables. So anyone interested in wearable technology and well-being, um, feel free to reach out to me. Keep in touch. Uh, Colleagues, Wendy Russell, Dave Martinez, Ben Kessner, William Hovey, Judy Shannon, Raina Friedman, Kim Zajak, Tracy Sokolowski, Star Saxton, among many others. There, there are so many people in my life that I feel grateful for. Um, Parker Palmer wrote The Courage to Teach and also taught me in a program and totally changed my life. And Cameron Marzelli also taught as part of my MFA program and was talking more about expression and poetry being part of what uh, keeps our physical body healthy, too. So... I recently wrote a book of poems called Digital Satori, and it really is dedicated to that because even though I teach about technology, I really teach about our wellness and our physical attendance to self first. So thank you for that question and giving me the ability to answer it so thoroughly.
1: That was wonderful. Thank you. You've given us so much to think about, and I know our listeners will have so much more to think about and we should probably have you on again for many more episodes. Cause there's so much more to discuss. So, um, thank you so much for your time and, and all of the connections
2: that you've made for us. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I really have had a fantastic time. Um, and I guess I, I'm not even looking at paper, but I wanted to close with a stanza. Um, it's, if there's time, it's a piece by, um, It's a piece called An Idea of Order at Key West by Wallace Stevens, and he wrote it about um, staring out in an ocean. I won't totally deconstruct it, but it's a very short stanza. An Idea of Order at Key West by Wallace Stevens. She sang beyond the genius of the sea. The water never formed to mind or voice. Like a body, holy body, fluttering its empty sleeves. And yet its mimic motion caused constant cry, caused constantly a cry that was not ours, although we knew, inhuman, of the veritable ocean.
1: Thank you for learning with us today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. If you'd like any additional information from the show, check out the show notes.
0: Learn more about Mastery Portfolio and how we support schools at MasteryPortfolio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Mastery for All
1: and on LinkedIn on the Mastery Portfolio page. We'd love for you to engage with us. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or know someone who would be an inspiring guest, please fill out the survey found in the show notes. And we'd love your feedback. Please write a review on your favorite podcasting app.